I'm Christopher Leiden with an open source extra. Mahatma Gandhi, over three decades, the first half of the 20th century, led the liberation of India from British rule by massive and peaceful resistance. He is said to be out of political fashion in India these days, but then he was not a man of fashion. He is thrillingly, dauntingly alive again in a grand biography, itself the project of decades for India's leading popular scholar, Ramchandra Guha, visiting us in Boston. It is good to be remembering this amazing man of the 20th century. So Einstein said, and he meant it, Ben Kingsley's version in the movie, the Richard Attenborough movie, reached millions of people. You've done it in 900 pages. I gotta tell you, my feet are tired because the man is walking, walking, walking through all those years. You say toward the end that no man, no politician ever knew his terrain the way Gandhi did. Maybe the least of his distinctions, but yes, hyperactive and the mind going all the time. What I take away from these 900 pages is the freedom of the man to be original, to break all sorts of molds and to make molds that would still be incredibly useful for our time. Where do you begin? So, uh, of course, uh, we begin with the fact that Gandhi is recognized as the great leader of the Indian freedom movement, as the father of his nation, but he only returned to his homeland at the age of 45. Because he lived in South, South Africa, Africa for more than two decades. So he was middle-aged uh, at a time when people are contemplating a second career or have reached the peak of their first career. And he returns to his homeland from the diaspora and over the next 30 odd years transforms his country and the world. But it's striking that when he returns to India in 1915, he did not know his country at all. He'd grown up in Gujarat, which is in the West Coast. He'd uh, studied in London. He'd briefly practiced the law in uh, uh, Bombay. But he had never actually spoken to an Indian worker or peasant or artisan mm. because he was a middle-class Indian growing up in a middle-class environment. It's the diaspora that enlarged his imagination, his social and political imagination. In South Africa, he interacted with workers, with merchants, with people who spoke different languages, not just Gujarati. And then he comes back to India, in a sense, fully formed politically. He had invented his technique of non-violent protest known as Satyagraha. He had committed himself to religious harmony, but he did not know the land, which is why he spent the whole of the first year traveling around India in a second-class railway compartment. You say fully formed, and that was maybe the big surprise of the early part of the book. He had big ideas by then. He was a sort of grievance guy. He was a poor person's guy. He was anti-industrial. He, yeah. belie- he really did believe in spinning your own... Correct. Cotton and homespun shirts, this sort of thing. He was also anti-sexual at an early age in the Tolstoyan mode. That yes. Sex yes. was a kind of uh, debasement of yes. the human person. And yeah. he, he lived with that for a long time. He was also vehemently, word one, anti-empire. Yeah, yeah. Well, not immediately, because for a time he thought that uh, the British with their sense of justice would deliver freedom and emancipation to the Indians, which is why he cautiously even supported the British in the First World War. But after the awful massacre in Amritsar in 1919, where 
a, a brutal general called Dyer mowed down 400 defenseless Indians. He lost his faith in the British Empire. But when I say fully formed, uh, some of the things you've already mentioned, committed to the poor, committed to economic self-reliance, uh, to getting rid of dependence on foreign multinationals and foreign goods, self-reliance within yourself so that you're very careful what diet you follow, how you keep physically pure, hmm. but also absolutely committed to equality between Hindus and Muslims, to rivalrous, often rivalrous yes. religious communities, and absolutely committed to the eradication of untouchability, which had disfigured Indian society because some one-fifth of India... Uh, were recognized or thought of as untouchables. I mean, almost akin to how slaves were treated in 19th century America. And Gandhi was one of the few upper caste Indian reformers who wanted to abolish untouchability. And he was one of the few Hindus who would say this is a worse than a stain on Hindu practice and history. It made Hinduism void almost. Yeah, absolutely. So he would say that how can we claim freedom from British rule when we denied freedom to our large section of our own population. You know, untouchables mm. had to live outside the main village. They didn't have access to the main water source. Uh, they couldn't practice. They had no ed- access to schools. They had to practice the most degrading occupations such as cleaning shit, working with leather and so on. And he uses an extraordinary phrase. I mentioned the Amritsar massacre orchestrated by a British general called Dyer. And Gandhi says shortly after that, those upper caste Hindus who believe in untouchability are the dyers within us. Mm. You know, so they're, they are just awful, brutal, imperial uh, animals, you know, who are oppressing a section of their own people. And until we get rid of this stain on Hinduism, we are not really deserving of political freedom. He had another fundamental quality that I just want to call attention to at the beginning. He, he had an instant rapport with masses of people, including children, and workers, poor people, the whole world. He was on Time Magazine's cover in the 1930s. There is an amazing consistency, but there's a personal appeal. I could talk to this guy. I could send him a letter, and he might even read it. There's another thing that's so consistent in the way he sort of called out the bully, the puffed-up, tough guy, disdainful viceroys and English people in general— I mean, he really, he was a perfect test of, of the underside of British language and character, most especially of Winston Churchill, yes. who hated him from the beginning, Absolutely. called him a fake care yeah. in, in both senses, but thought he was just the worst. Yeah. Yeah, I think... And you got to uh, give, give Gandhi credit for that. It's interesting. At one level, of course, Gandhi was absolutely opposed to British imperial rule. The voice, viceroys detested him. Churchill reviled him and was desperate for him to die. You know, when Mm. Gandhi was in jail, he really wanted him to die. But at the same time, Gandhi never held grudges against individuals. Part of his appeal was he was opposed to the principle of imperialism, but his closest friend was an English Christian priest. You know, he loved London. When Hitler bombed London, he he wept. And I'm sure he did weep because he had walked through Mm. the streets of London as a law student. And the thought of Westminster Abbey and... Uh, Big Ben going under, you know, moved him to tears. He had a very kind of down-to-earth manner about him. There's a lovely uh, meeting that I describe in the book between Charlie Chaplin and himself, where he had never heard of Charlie Chaplin. He was in London in 1931. (laughs) The great actor wanted to meet him, and he had never heard of him. But they got along famously. Two men of the people, you know, 
Chaplin, through his films, could communicate with everybody, and Gandhi, through his politics, which is open and transparent and almost childlike, uh, could also communicate with everybody. Yes. So it's it's sort of I think it was called you know uh, the Mahatma who can become a clown and the clown who is some sometimes a Mahatma. That was the meeting. So he had this very endearing, down to earth quality. He also had this uh, ability, which some people do. Nelson Mandela apparently had that had that quality, and I'm sure other great leaders do. Who did? Nelson Mandela had this quality that when you're with them, even if he gives you a five-minute interview, you think you're the center of the world. You know, he's not dreaming or playing with his cell phone or tweeting about this, this or that. He's giving you his absolute undivided attention. And almost anyone could walk into his ashram. So he was able, with a, two exceptions, which we can come to, who were his great political rivals, Jinnah and Ambedkar, with everybody else, and Churchill would be the third exception, even with people who disagreed with him, uh, those people recognized his fundamental decency and humanity. I didn't realize he met Chaplin. Ashish Nandi writes about Gandhi as a man out of the Charlie Chaplin book, particularly on those salt <laughs> marches. <laughs> the lonely figure walking in the distance, silhouetted, was Gandhi, but it could have been Charlie Chaplin. It yeah. could have been Mickey Mouse, yeah, Ashish yeah, Nandi yeah, says. Yeah, yeah. Why are we thinking about Gandhi today. You're writing about Gandhi because you've written about India before Gandhi and India after Gandhi, and you had to fill in the missing brick, obviously. But I'm thinking about us and Americans and the world, which couldn't be in a more anti-Gandhi or un-Gandhi sort of mode of the current leadership in India and the States and yes. lots of other places. Absolutely. But I was just reminded... Nine years ago, with Barack Obama in his first year in the White House, I interviewed Gandhi's grandson, Rajmohan, mm -hmm. who'd written a book about yes. Grandpa. But by then, everybody knew that Obama had been asked by a school kid who, of all the people, living and dead, real or fictional, he'd have lunch with if he could. He had said he'd want to have lunch with Gandhi. And then, of course, he, without Gandhi's permission, extended the American war in Afghanistan. That was a minor detail. But but he also added, I would like to have lunch with Gandhi, although I know it would be a frugal meal. Yes, yes, yes. He did say yes. that, yes. But yeah. I asked uh, Rajmahan what might have gone on between the two of them, especially if Obama said in some fashion, I'm a young idealist with a global imagination. My military chief has asked for 40,000 troops to fight in Afghanistan. My ambassador in Kabul has said, don't send them, it's a dead end. How might I, Mr. Gandhi, be guided by you? And Gandhi, as Rajmahan imagined it, would have said, it's a difficult job you've got, and we know there's unemployment, suffering, sadness in the United States to worry about. But he would have said, I don't know what you should do, but... He would have said that if you truly reflect and you think of the neediest people in the world and what will help them, then you will know what you should do. What would Gandhi see in our world and want to correct, publicly or privately? Where would he, where would he feel we've, we've so, missed the boat? So I think uh, he would not be entirely displeased or bleak about either India today or the world today. For example, I think he would very much welcome the fact that in India, untouchability is abolished by law. He would welcome the fact that by law, uh, you know, African-Americans are not discriminated against. 
that struggles against racial and caste and indeed gender discrimination have led to significant changes in the law. They haven't led to the same changes in social practice. So in everyday life, it may be the case that in large parts of America, African-Americans don't have equal rights. And in large parts of India, untouchables or Dalits don't have equal rights. But he would have applauded the fact that you have this at least uh, movement for racial, gender and caste equality. I think he would be deeply worried above all by two things, if he was to look at the world today. The first is sectarian violence. Mm. between Christians and Muslims, Hindus and Muslims, Sunnis and Shias, Jews and Palestinians. That would have deeply worried him because Gandhi was someone who had a profoundly ecumenical attitude to faith. You know, right. His closest friend was a Christian uh, in India. Uh, in South Africa... Andrews. And, Andrews. Yep. In South, South Africa, his two closest friends were Jews, Polak and Kallenbach. His great mentor was a Jain. He spent his whole life trying to convince Indian Muslims that they were equal citizens of the land. So I think in both faith, in his faith, in his practice, he was absolutely ecumenical. And that so many people are butchering each other today in the name of faith. Because mm. Gandhi believed, Gandhi always said, every religion is a mixture of truth and error. There is no single true path to God. If you're born a Hindu, accept your faith, try and redeem it of such awful things as untouchability and oppression of women. And converse with people of other faith and learn from them. You know, talk with Christians and Jews and so on. And he had the, he invented this interfaith prayer meeting. So Gandhi, for example, right. never went to a temple. His God was within him. Like Tolstoy, his mentor, he said, the kingdom of God is within you. So in his ashram, every morning and every evening, there would be an interfaith prayer meeting where Christian hymns would be sung, Hindu bhajans right. would be sung, verses from, you know, the Parsi texts would be read. So I think this is one thing that would have deeply distressed him unstoppable rise of sectarian violence across the world, uh, which has spared no religion at all, and which each fundamentalist of every religion are equally culpable. The second thing that Gandhi would have worried about was, as I quote, right at the end of the book, in my epilogue, he was a precocious environmentalist. He could see that, the, you know, the pattern mm. of re resource-intensive, energy-intensive, uh, consumer-oriented society that the West was following, if replicated worldwide, would lead to planetary disaster. There's a phrase in my book where I quote him as saying, if India takes to industrialization yes. after the manner of the West, it will strip the world bare like locusts. Now, India and China may indeed strip the world bare like locusts. So this extraordinary greed of uh, rich people in my country, in your country, you know, there is a one, our richest industrialist, uh, he hasn't run for office yet, so we should be grateful for that. Uh, but he has built a 27-story mansion for himself and his three children yeah, yeah, in yeah. Bombay. Right. Mr. Ambani, the brothers. Um, uh, the elder brother, um, the Mukesh, uh, Mukesh Ambani. Now, this kind of voyeuristic consumerism uh, I mean, would have appalled Gandhi because he would have seen not only is it unethical, not only is it vulgar, not only is it sticking... It in the face of poor people without water, housing, sanitation. Also, it's absolutely unsustainable. The world cannot, the earth cannot sustain this. So I think these are the two things about the 21st century that have worried him. The third thing, at a personal level, when he would see the politicians uh, who rule different countries today, whether it be Trump uh, in America or Modi in India or Putin in Russia or Erdogan in Turkey, uh, you know, the arrogance of these politicians, uh, their self-love, their intolerance towards critics. 
he had a completely transparent and open political life. He was welcomed criticism. He responded to it. He opened his mind. He grew, and he was never discourteous to anyone, even his most bitter political opponents. So the uh, the debasement of political discourse in the world today would also have dismayed him. Ramguha, I want to presume to push back on on your sense that he would he would see lots to be happy about it. Some things to be happy about, yeah, yeah. Well, I, I, I think of three things that would bother him acutely. First of all, the untouchability question. I was in India in August. Uh, my host there, journalist you know, said, Chris, you have no idea of the penetration of the caste system in our real world. And I presume he's of a, of a higher caste, but yeah rooted in Hindu belief in their whole cosmology, their metaphysics, is Correct. the idea Absolutely. that uh, some people are born into this world to be punished. Yeah, and some people are born in, into this world to be rewarded. Yeah, yeah. So, and yeah. it's pervasive and deeply wounding. I mean, when you an American goes to India, and I've been there many times, you see inequality enforced in a way by color, by clothing, by by the the broom in the in the hand, it's everywhere. Uh, I think he would be acutely distressed about that. Second, you know, the Muslim Hindu riots, killings go on. Modi, in a sense, owes his reputation, maybe his career, to an arch-Hindu identity. Yes. This is as bad as it's been in, in, yeah. in modern it, times, I think. Absolutely. Um, but then the third thing, if somebody said, oh, by the way, Mohandas, India and the North, Punjab has been sliced in half. There's another country up there that you discussed with Jinnah, and there are nuclear weapons pointing back and forth at between India and what is now called Pakistan, a poorer, smaller Muslim nation facing a giant Hindu India. I think he'd be beside himself. Well, in an earlier book, I described India as a 50-50 democracy. So it's certainly true that uh, discrimination according to caste persists. It's certainly true that the persecution of minorities is worse today in 2018 than it has been for many years. And Gandhi mm. would have been appalled, and I am appalled, and continuously speaking or against it. Against that, the fact that we are one country run on democratic lines in which everyone has the franchise, in which we have a relatively free press, in which there's freedom of movement, uh, uh, I think are also things that must be cautiously celebrated. So I think it's Gandhi would have have, have mixed feelings about India today. I don't think he'd mm. be un, um, ambiguously despondent. He would certainly think he's he, not a despondent type. But yeah. just take the empire, uh, which he watched so warily. I think he would see that the last stroke of the British Empire was the worst to divide the country. Yeah. As the Brits did in Ireland, as they did in the Middle East, correct, was correct. a poisonous yeah. wound. Yeah, and I think what he, in many ways, his greatest, I mean, he had an extraordinary life, replete with ex extraordinary achievements. But in many ways, the greatest months of a greatest life were the months after partition, 
Once the British had right. divided the country into India and Pakistan, and Hindus and Muslims were butchering one another, this 77-year-old man went on a peace march through Bengal, fasted in Calcutta, fasted in Delhi, brought reason and peace and sanity to those places, and was going across the border to Pakistan to preach the same message of interfaith harmony when he was murdered by a Hindu fanatic. So I think too few Indians and too few Pakistanis hmm. recognized that these were his greatest and most heroic and most noble and most uh, you know, uh, elevating uh, uh, months of, of a very long life. Hmm. And I think to add in everyday life in India today or in Pakistan or in Bangladesh, I think people of faith, people of reason, people of decency must cultivate respect and interfaith harmony. I mean, we persecute our Muslims. Pakistan persecutes its Hindus and its Christians. Bangladesh persecutes its Hindus. The Burmese persecute their Rohingyas. See, the Sri Lankans persecute their Tamils. So, you know, in, in some ways, South Asia is a microcosm of a global phenomenon, which is, you know, uh, xenophobia, parochialism, majoritarianism. And that, that aspect of uh, modern contemporary life would have appalled Gandhi most of all. That's very well said. I think he would also say, if he had another shot, get me Jinnah, Muhammad Ali Jinnah, hmm. leading the Muslim League hmm. all those years. They knew each other well. They were yeah. both contemporaries. They had both That's practiced it. law. They both were trained in England. Um, they Jinnah, both spoke the same language, Gujarati. They had the same yes, mother tongue. Yes. Yeah. Jinnah for the Muslims who wanted to secede into Pakistan. Gandhi with India and the Congress Party. Jinnah's complaint comes through very clearly in your book. He looked at Gandhi and he saw... Uh, a politician of the Hindu faith who was never going to give them an equal place at the table. They couldn't have had an equal place at the table, but even a respectful place at the table. What might Gandhi have done to, to keep that pudding of a culture so similar once you cross the border in terms of family structure, men, women, music, love of life, to keep it all together? I think Gandhi did as much as he possibly could. I think his colleagues in the Congress party made mistakes. I talk in the book of an uh, election held in 1937 when the British were still in power uh, and it was a sort of a partial devolution of authority to Indians. Uh, and in those elections in the crucial state of United Provinces in the North, the Congress could have had a coalition government with the Muslim League, which it did not do. But Jinnah also was extremely pig-headed and dogmatic. He was committed for many years to the creation of an independent Pakistan. And I think Jinnah did not recognize uh, that once you say that Muslims cannot live with Hindus, this is what he basically said. He said Muslims cannot live with Hindus. Mm. And in Pakistan that became Sunnis cannot live with Shias, uh, Sunnis and Shias cannot live with Ahmadiyyas and Ismailis. So Pakistan has become progressively more fundamentalist. And the warning right. for us and the warning for us in India. They need the religious identity to confirm the political madness. That's true, that's true. But in India, where we still have a much more plural population, you know, because of Gandhi's last and remarkable fast, many Muslims stayed behind in India. So in Pakistan. Hindus are about 2% of the population. In India, Muslims, Christians are 6, are 20% of the population. So we are a much more diverse country than And more Pakistan. Muslims in India than there are in Pakistan, right? They're about the same. They're about the same. 150 million. 170 million, about the same. Now, 
And of course, Jinnah tried to create a single country on the basis of religion, but the country was divided because the Bengalis of East Pakistan resented the imposition of Urdu by the Punjabis of the West. So religion could not keep that country together. So the lesson for us today, I mean, partition is 70 years old. We can't undo it. We can't undo it. And I think we shouldn't uh, indulge in a excessive lament or a nostalgia for United India either because it's not coming back. But we, as an Indian, we can certainly do two things. One is, first, recall Gandhi's message that India does not belong to Hindus alone. And work ceaselessly to assure the minorities who mm. at the present moment under Modi's government feel insecure and vulnerable to assure them that they have absolutely equal citizens. That's the first thing. The second thing is to let bygones be bygones vis-a-vis -vis Pakistan and have a kind of civilized relationship in the way in which France and Germany have a civilized relationship. They fought many wars in the past. Uh, find a way of resolving the Kashmir dispute uh, because clearly... Uh, the arms race between India and Pakistan undermines both countries, not more, not so much morally as economically yeah. and socially. By putting so much money into uh, armaments, uh, you know, we don't have enough resources for education, health, infrastructure, institution building and so on. So I think the, I am not sympathetic to those who lament hmm. uh, uh, the loss of a united India or who keep on going and scratching the wounds of partition because that's 70 years old. We have to move on. I want to come back to Gandhi himself, the man, an amazing character. George Orwell, writing at Gandhi's death, he, he began a piece by noting that saints should always be judged guilty until they are proved innocent. Correct. And he ended that piece with a great line that you quote in the book, compared with the other leading political figures of our time, how clean a smell he has managed to leave behind. Yeah. Wouldn't we all love to be remembered that way? Yeah, because, uh, I mean, of course, the greatness of Orwell was that he was willing to acknowledge his own misinterpretations of Gandhi. You know, for a long time, Orwell was skeptical of Gandhi. He thought that nonviolence uh, would only work rightly, only work against the British. Orwell was a socialist, a rationalist, so he was skeptical of Gandhi's mystical, spiritual bent. Orwell detested, you know, Orwell liked his cigarette and his uh, glass of beer, so he detested Gandhi's vegetarianism and his food fadism. The so there was an almost aesthetic intellectual distaste for Gandhi that runs through Orwell's writings in the 30s and 40s. And mm. then Gandhi dies. And that's when the moral greatness of the man hits Orwell. So that that essay is a tribute to Gandhi, but also a tribute to Orwell for, <laughs> for changing his mind. Yes. Yeah. Uh, there's another wonderful writer in my mind, Ashish Nandi, yeah. an Indian. I call him the sage of, of New Delhi. He wrote a marvelous book called The Intimate Enemy about the deeper psychology of colonists and the colonized, and also wonderfully about Gandhi's role. He, he sort of decodes the framework of British colonialism in India, the mental imagery of a superior culture and military power confronting those martial Indian forces, the Sikhs, the, the Pathan warriors that the Kipling Brits loved, but also knew they could subdue. Gandhi does something very different. He engages a sort of Christian critique of imperialism, the, the morality of domination, and then 
this is Gandhi speaking, but he melt, Gandhi melts into the demilitarized, androgynous, and in every way ambiguous chaos of Hindu understanding, which gets him close to the figure of Charlie Chaplin, as you were yeah, saying, yeah. or Mickey Mouse, doing kind of absurd satire on the pretensions of empire. But the result is that where the British warriors would happily have fought forever with the Indian warriors, yeah. knowing that they could prevail, Gandhi comes along, and this is Nandi, Ashish Nandi again, but Gandhi is this little old lady of a man, mm. sort of hard to figure sexually, but he's he's the basically a bald baby in a diaper, and he says, no, we're going to do it another way. Mm. There's something such so profoundly inventive, imaginative, original, and successful mm-hmm. in that casting of himself. Yeah, yeah. That figure leaves me in sort of awe. Yeah, I mean, because uh, as you say, uh, uh, if you're confronted with a few armed revolutionaries, you can tame them. You know, you can shoot them, you can uh, imprison them, you can execute them. If it's an uprising, a larger uprising as happened in 1857, you can quell that too. Because, but what do you do with thousands of people on the streets sitting down and refusing to move uh, and led by people uh, people inspired by Gandhi, you know, who are bringing mm. suffering on themselves. I mean, there's a section in this book where, which is about the salt march, and it's about, uh, so I start the book with... The salt the, march is in the early 30s. 1930. Against, against the government uh, monopoly and... Against, so there's a government monopoly on tax, uh, on salt. And uh, uh, Gandhi decides that he will march to the sea from his, his own home in Ahmedabad, which is three weeks march from the sea to make salt in the sea. And he starts the march, and I, the viceroy in Delhi uh, uh, is puzzled. He says, what is this? Why isn't he just, you know, burning up a police station or a court or attacking British imperialism? What is this marching to the sea? And yeah. then he says, I won't arrest him because that will make a martyr of him. So the viceroy was completely befuddled and non-comprehending by this gesture. And he starts marching. And... Uh, as skeptical of Gandhi, the viceroy was skeptical of Gandhi, and so was, as I quote there, the reporter of the American news magazine Time. And he says, this little man in a loincloth marching, is this the way to take on the empire? You know, And he marches, more people come, the international press starts covering it, and then the viceroy is so confused, he doesn't arrest him, <laughs> and then he makes salt, and simultaneously, all across India, in every coastal town and village, people are making salt. So there's a major non-violent, peaceful uprising on the question of salt. And the empire is totally shamed. So he had he was an extraordinarily politi- political innovator. Not just in how he dressed and what mm. he ate, ate or did not eat, but also in the theatre of his actions. So... Let this old man march to the sea, you know, fine. I mean, let him, it, it's, it's an antique. It won't affect us. It was how uh, the viceroy in Delhi he was thinking. But actually, it galvanized public opinion all across. And people came from, from everywhere to cover it. And uh, the British post and telegraph system uh, was uh, subverted in the cause of Indian nationalism. Because wherever he marched, 500 cables would go to other parts of India saying, this is what the Mahatma is doing. Money would be collected for him. And, you know, it was really a major popular upsurge. And essentially that was, although independence per se came only a decade and a half later, Hmm. the salt march essentially eroded the legitimacy of British rule in India. Amazing. Positively amazing. He he, he was an absolute. But 
later on so whether in his politics uh, or in his or in his attacks on untouchability for example one of the ways in which he attacked untouchability uh, was to say all of us will enter the temple because the entry to the temple was denied to the untouchables they could only go to the outskirts they were not allowed to worship the god mm. and gandhi said no upper caste low caste will mingle go together and break the law and enter the temple to show uh, in practice whatever the scriptures say in practice there is equality before god mm. and in some ways the temple entry movement is a precursor of the freedom riders yeah yes where whites and blacks go together yeah we're going to talk about this yeah so in a sense king learns these methods from gandhi that even if the law says white men and black men cannot drink together or eat together or sit in a bus together we will do it mm. which is different from only black men protesting by bringing whites into your struggle king undermined the legitimacy of the racial order in a much more emphatic way than simply picking up a gun and shooting some white mm. sheriffs and that was gandhi's method too i was surprised uh, last stop in india that nehru is over Yeah, the Nehru cult is, is over. Yeah, what is popular Indian culture today make of the Gandhi memory? So Gandhi is admired outside. Well, there's a kind of a ritual invocation of Gandhi by the political establishment. So on the day of his birth, second October, the day of his martyrdom, thirtieth January. On that day, the prime minister of whichever party will go to his memorial in Delhi, and you know, sort of. Sanctimoniously and hypocritically, stay silent for thirty seconds. But there is no visible sign of Gandhi's influence in what the ruling party does. For example, their treatment of Muslims is abominable. Where Gandhi lives is in everyday social life. So, in the environmental movement, the human rights movement, you know, uh, people doing constructive work in the villages. But the thing about Gandhi, and I never tire of saying this, is that though he was born in India, Gandhi does not belong to India alone. You know, he's invoked and discussed and debated all over the world, because his message of interfaith harmony, of environmental responsibility, of courtesy, civility, of an end to racial and gender discrimination are not restricted to India. So, in a sense, though he was born in India, like I mean, in the, in that sense, he resembles the Buddha. The mm. Buddha was born in India, was, was affirmed and upheld and followed much more outside India than Gandhi, huh. and that might be Gandhi's eventual fate. that might be gandhi's eventual fate that the indians would discard him and forget him but the rest of the world will remember him speak of gandhi's family life he's married young to a very faithful woman has what four or five children four children four sons yeah and who have tragic lives in some degree but he sort of forswears the deep and sexual connection with his wife early on and then he falls in love but hmm. never hmm. consummated hmm. and he's um but how, how would you describe it he's he's bound to the road and to his work yeah. from then on yeah so he marries young has four sons his first son was born when he was just 18 and the last son was born when he was in his early 30s and his he is a he is a hindu patriarch so essentially he bends his wife to his will she has to adopt his ideas on uh abolition of caste prejudice she has to go to jail with him uh 
slowly they evolve a kind of companionable marriage, which is then threatened uh, when, at the age of 50, Gandhi meets and falls in love with a beautiful Bengali writer and poetess. Uh, they have an intense emotional relationship for a year, which is not consummated, and then, then Gandhi withdraws because he feels that this will, this will undermine his project of leading the Indian people towards political emancipation. Now, that's his kind of romantic life. But with regard to his children, uh, he was a very harsh and unforgiving father, particularly to his two eldest boys, whom he wanted to mould in his own image. Mm. They must be celibate. They must sacrifice. They must go to jail. Uh, they must devote themselves to, to the cause of Indian freedom. They must not remotely think of a career for themselves. And the first boy particularly was broken by this because he was a brilliant, gifted man. He had a love marriage. Gandhi was uh, d disapproving. Uh, uh, he wanted to have his own career. He told his father, you became a lawyer and went to London. Why I can't do this? And he had a very tormented relationship with his father, uh, which was never resolved. Uh, the father was uh, unforgiving, judgmental, hostile. So this eldest boy, Harilal, becomes an alcoholic. His wife dies. He's passionately in love with his wife, but the wife dies young, he's left bereft, he becomes an alcoholic, he's a serial failed entrepreneur, and all the time seeking his father's approval, which never comes. Uh, then there's the second son, who Gandhi says, you have to go back to South Africa and lead the Indians there, because I have left South Africa, and someone has to, you be my kind of emissary there. And with him too, he has very high, excessively high moral standards, he wants him to be celibate too. It's only with the third and fourth sons that Gandhi shows some compassion, some affection, some understanding. So he grows as a father, but very slowly. So in many ways, the least appealing part of his personality comes out in his treatment of his wife and his elder children. He kept saying in your book that his three favorite writers were Thoreau, an American, Ruskin, John Ruskin, an Englishman, and Tolstoy, Correct. the Russian, who shared his sort of wacky, anti-sexual militancy. Yeah. Yeah, he admired them for different reasons. I mean, I was... Uh, over the weekend, I went to Walden Pond and walked around it. Good for you, Part, Partly in homage to Thoreau, <laughs> partly in homage to Gandhi, and partly because, like both of them, I like walking. So, you know, I took a long walk around. And it's a magic place. It, it was lovely. And the fall, we love it. And the fall, color, fall colors were just mm. coming out. Mm. So I was very happy to do that. I, you know, in that sense, the simple life, all of them share. You know, Ruskin, Thoreau, and uh, Tolstoy, all were advocates of the simple life. All were, uh, not Ruskin so much, but certainly Tolstoy and Thoreau were advocates of resistance to unjust authority. In, uh, you know, they would go to jail uh, uh, and advocate nonviolent resistance to mil military conscription, for example. So uh, all were... Religious pluralists, no one thought that, you know, their Christianity was the perfect way to God. So there are some resonances, and it's quite curious that here is, this, and again, it's a tribute to Gandhi's capacious internationalism. Yes. Here is the great fighter for Indian freedom, the father of the Indian nation, who openly and willingly acknowledges a debt to a Russian, an Englishman, and an American. You know, it's <laughs> wonderful. It's wonderful. We should all learn from this. You've told the story at incredibly detailed length and very, very well. Ram Guha, thank you so much. Thank you, Chris. Always a pleasure to be with you.